What's up, everyone? You're listening to the Anthro Alert podcast, which is the recording of our live show, Anthro Alert. You can now listen at your leisure and at your convenience. If you're new here on Anthro Alert, this is where Renee and I, your hosts, and sometimes a guest, analyze, break down, and discuss different topics each week anthropologically. Enjoy. WUSF 89.7, HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and on the TuneIn app. You're listening to Anthro Alert. Here we are, November, uh, actually, what day, what day is today? Today is uh, January 12th. Uh, yeah, not November. <laughs> it's January. All right, so this is Anthro Alert. This show is about anthropology and why it matters. Each week, we'll discuss how anthropology is relevant. And over time, we'll feature various guests from the Department of Anthropology to discuss their research and have them weigh in on everyday topics or current events. We believe that this show is a good opportunity for us as anthropologists, as aspiring anthropologists, to better connect with the USF community and raise awareness of the value of an anthropological perspective, because it's very important in this day and age. Um, So we like to preface each of our shows with a disclaimer that the statements we make and the opinions we express on AnthroAlert are our own, and we do not necessarily represent um, anthropology as a discipline, the University of South Florida, the anthropology department, um, student government, and what else? Yeah, all all those people. Everything. Everybody, yep. My my opinion is my own, and even then, I I don't know if it's my own. (laughs) All right, so my, w- welcome to the show. My name is Renee. And I'm Spencer. And today our guest is Ryan, from a PhD candidate here at the Universi- University of South Florida, uh, studying archaeology. He grew up in, uh, he grew up west of St. Louis, Missouri. I was going to say he grew up in St. Louis, but he grew up in west of St. Louis, Missouri. Got his bachelor's degree in anthropology at Missouri State in 2008, not that long ago, um, and uh, got his master's degree in anthropology here at USF. Just uh, finished that up in 2012, and now working hard towards the PhD. Um, so here we are today. We're gonna we're gonna talk about some stuff. Yeah. How far along in the PhD program are you, Ryan? I'll be starting my third year this fall, so I'm about two and a half years in. It feels a little bit longer than that. Yeah. But it's it's going well so far. So you finished coursework about this time, probably right? Yes. Well, I did my master's, as Renee mentioned, okay. at USF also, so it allowed me to finish my coursework a, a bit earlier, but I'm, I'm through with that now and fully invested in the research. Nice. All right, so let's just hop straight into to some topics here. So actually, before you came to USF, you, uh, you actually worked as, I guess, a professional archaeologist. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I'll start by saying that I got into archaeology sort of late in the game. During my undergraduate career, I was sort of an undecided major and chose anthropology during my junior year, and so it was a rush to finish a bunch of anthropology coursework, and at that time I sort of learned that, you know, archaeology was something that was interesting to me, was something that I could possibly get into, so I did a field school actually about the same time I graduated undergrad, and was fortunate enough to get a job in the CRM industry shortly thereafter. So CRM? CRM is cultural resource management. 
So anytime before any state or federal entity is going to do construction of any kind on state or federal lands, or if a city has a, a rule in place or a law in place, the same law might apply. But in general, archaeological survey is required beforehand to determine whether any cultural resources are eligible for the National Register, so the National Register of Historic Places. So is, is there any historical significance to this property before we go ahead and, and build something on top of it? And that includes archaeological resources, of course. So it includes things like buildings as well, but the subsurface remains are sort of the bread and butter of the archaeologist, and so it, it makes sense that those would be incorporated into the legal framework as well. And so how many how many years did you actually work in the CRM field? I worked in CRM for about two and a half years in between my bachelor's and master's degrees. I still do it today um, here in Florida. I've done it um, as part of the Ph.D. program in between uh, the semesters in the summertime and the wintertime when I've got some extra hours. It's a nice way to earn a little bit of supplemental income, <laughs> yeah. and at the same time being doing something that's very practical and useful for, for the degree program. Absolutely. And so you also worked in public archaeology as, as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, what's, I mean, what exactly is public archaeology? Absolutely. So I think we had some former guests from the Florida Public Archaeology Network, Cassie yep. and Becky, yep. um, who, who spoke a bit about what they do. I was fortunate enough as well to work with Cassie and Becky for a number of years for the Florida Public Archaeology Network here in Tampa. And after I graduated with my master's degree, I actually held the same position that Becky has here at USF. I worked for Flagler College in St. Augustine for about two years. And so long story short, public archaeology is really at least here in the state of Florida, is any means of engaging the public. It's public site tours. It's giving presentations at museums. It's taking folks um, outside, visiting archaeological sites. Um, really, it's, it's actually, it's Facebook. It's doing, it's doing radio and television, things like we're doing right now. So they're really, the only limit to public archaeology is one's own creativity and imagination, I think. I've noticed in um, sort of your work history, there's, you know, there's a pattern of you get a degree and then work a little <laughs> bit. Was that a conscious decision that you made or was, was it just kind of just kind of happened like that? That's a good question, actually. In between my bachelor's and my master's degree, it was very, very planned. I, I left my bachelor's program and they told me, you know, if you want to work full-time in the field of archaeology, a master's degree is probably a good idea, but we recommend that you go get some real-world experience beforehand. Make sure that this is something that you're really interested in because reading archaeology in a book and experiencing the actual fieldwork are two very different things, and so it was sort of part of that discovery process, and I learned that I, I actually really did enjoy being outside, doing, doing the digging, um, the manual labor, if you will, and so from then on, I was I was hooked. I, I was in, and I knew that I wanted to go ahead and get a master's degree and and make that the the plan. You know, get a job in CRM, get a job for the Park Service, something like this. But um, for whatever reason, it I, I didn't end up 
staying the same path or staying the same course. So to answer the question, I sort of changed my path and changed my mind. A PhD was not in the plan. A PhD sort of happened as a result of meeting good folks at USF and wanting of, to of return. Of which there are many. Of which there of are which very, many. very many. Um, it, it became one of those, well, it, it worked It worked one time, maybe it can work again in terms of, of having a very inspiring research project and something like that. So to, to circle back again and make a, a long story longer, the master's degree was always planned. The Ph.D. was, was not. Okay. So, so you liked, you enjoyed learning about archaeology and you enjoyed reading about archaeology. And when it came down to it, you actually liked doing archaeology. Absolutely correct. Um, it it ended up just coincidence or happenstance, or maybe I just knew enough about myself at that point um, to where all the pieces clicked. It seemed like archaeology had a little bit of everything. You got to be outside. You get to be indoors doing maybe some teaching. You get to be um, in a library doing research. It, you could sort of reach all domains and um, have a nice balance that I think was very appealing to me. Now, um, one more off-topic, topical question. Uh, in, in your experience, you meet any people who, you know, enjoyed reading about archaeology and learning about archaeology, but then when it came down to it, they're like, oh, actually, I do not like archaeology or doing archaeology or, you know, the vice versa. That, that, because I'm thinking, because I, I didn't get a lot out of reading and learning about archaeology, but maybe if I would have, like, actually been thrown into a field school, it would have been, you know, more engaging. I don't know. Right. I think that can go one of two ways, and I've met people that in my in my field school during my bachelor's program, I met people who changed their major to leave anthropology when they had done the field school, unfortunately, because they just realized that it, it wasn't something that was for them. And then we had other folks in that same field school who were sort of on the fence, were undecided in their major. They were taking the field school early on in their bachelor's program and then changed their major to anthropology with a focus in archaeology because they loved it so much. So it, it's something that is, is certainly appealing to everyone. It's just a, maybe at different scales. So it depends. It depends, All right. just like so many other things. <laughs> That's the answer to a lot of different questions. Right. If I don't know any answers for the remainder of the show, I'll just answer it depends. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a short show. <laughs> All right, next next question. What do we got? Um, oh, so um, I, we're going to just, I guess, briefly touch on your um, the research you did for your MA thesis here, or I guess MA project more for archaeology, right? Either way works. Okay. Absolutely. When I came into the program, I was lucky enough to where my advisor, Nancy White, and a faculty member in geosciences, Greg Herbert, were already collaborating on a project because they worked in the same area of northwest Florida in a place called St. Joseph Bay. Of course, their research questions were very, very different. Their methodologies were different to, to suit those questions. But there was enough overlap to where they could begin to ask, you know, how can we help each other? And then so I was really a student who was right place at the right time, if you want to look at it that way. And we began to to wonder if we could answer the question of seasonality of an archaeological site on the coast. And so by seasonality, I just mean what times of the year were Native Americans using that site? And 
it sort of sounds like from a maybe a cultural anthropologist perspective or maybe an outsider's perspective, well, you know, that's not really a very exciting question. That sounds a little boring what time of the year that they were using the site. But when you put it into a larger cultural framework of, of folks that are moving about the landscape a great deal, perhaps they're hunter-gatherers or, or foragers, that's going to have ramifications or implications for a lot of other sort of cultural behaviors, let's say. So that's also going to organize your time with respect to your hunting and your fishing, your your rituals, the all the things we do today that are still seasonally oriented, right? And so we came up with this idea of applying sclerochronology, which is probably a term that I should go ahead and Yeah, we and, should probably go define. ahead and break that one down, yeah. You, you might even want to spell it. No, no, no I don't know if I can spell no, it. No, it's it's uh you can you can see it on anthroalert.com. We have it written out. Okay, yeah. Uh, I don't want to. Yeah, first time I heard about that term. Yeah. Well, it's analogous. It's similar to dendrochronology, which okay. folks might be more familiar yeah. with, which is tree rings. Yeah, know what that one is. Okay. <laughs> so mollusks or shells have the same sort of periodical rings that occur. In, in their shell or okay. in the in the structure that the animal is building in the same way that a tree does. So oh, okay. when I say I'm sclerochronology, think dendrochronology. So think rings on a shell versus rings on a tree. Okay, I'm with you now. So we oh, got to right. so count the rings. Yep. Count the rings in a way. So what we end up doing is, well, in a place like northwest Florida, in the wintertime, it's, it's very cold, right? Well, relatively speaking, <laughs> relatively speaking, yeah. um, it certainly is a temperature variance um, compared with the summertime, right? Okay. Yeah. And so that's going to be reflected in the in the water temperature, right? The the water temperature in December is going to be much colder than it is in let's say June, and so the animals growing in these waters, and so it's going to adapt its growth cycles. Um, according to what it's eating and according to the local environment, but also in large in large part due to the water temperature. And so it might cease growing in the wintertime. It might grow faster in the summertime. And so the same way where a tree, for example, if it's, a, if it's very, very rainy, a tree is going to produce thicker rings because of the, the dampness in the tree rings. So it's the same sort of thing with a shell, not in that rain causes a thicker ring or something like this, but there's discrepancies that, that we can pick up on. Okay. So, so that helps you with understanding the seasonality. Right. So if a shell is, is growing periodically in a way with some periodicity, with some sort of um, regularity that we can measure, then if we find an archaeological shell in one of our middens and we can count summer and winter growth rings for example, and we can see where the where that cycle ends on a summer or a winter, um, then that tells us the time of year that Native Americans might have been using the site. And so that that was the bread and butter sort of of that research project. And for Anthro 101, a midden is oh, I'm sorry, um, a midden is simply a refuse pile or a oh. trash pile. Okay. In this case, left by Native Americans, but it certainly we could apply it in today's context and call any of our garbages, middens. In my apartment. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
All right. Well, I think that's a good stopping point here. So when we come back, we're going to talk to Ryan about what he's doing now for his dissertation. So stay tuned. All right. Here we are. Welcome back to Anthro Alert here on Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 a.m. on campus and streaming worldwide 24-7 live and on the scene at TuneIn.com and the TuneIn app if you have a mobile a mobile device. Uh, today we're talking to to Ryan here at the USF Anthropology Department, a uh, PhD archaeology student. Uh, if you have questions for the show, if you want to you want to text us your question, you can do that at 802-552-4487. We'll get those. We'll answer them as long as they as long as we can answer them. Yeah. Or on Twitter just at anthroalert. Yeah. Um and also before we continue the conversation, for those of you uh in the Tampa area that are listening live right now, you know, just remember that the graduate student organization, um, the Anthropology Graduate Student Organization, is having a potluck at the best park I know of in Tampa, USF Riverfront Park. So if you haven't seen your gator for 2018 yet, go check them out. They're there. What time would that potluck be at? 4 to 6 Eastern Standard Time. Yep. All 4 right. to 6.30. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I think so. All right. Cool. Is that all of our announcements for this week? Yeah, I guess. I think that's all I had. Okay, that's all I had. So if you want to be a part of Anther Alert this week, we're going to start taking questions. So let us know your thoughts and your inquiries. Yeah, and don't be shy. We, get, we can answer them. Well, at least we'll say that we got them. <laughs> right. Um, it, it, the answer might be it depends. <laughs> it, Sometimes that's just a good answer, though. All right. So uh, Ryan, he was telling us about how he combined um, interest in, in different life sciences with anthropological theory and how he's kind of blended those two to help better understand how to place us. Um, basically, add context, um, chronological, seasonal context to different archaeological sites here in Florida. So. That's kind of where we left off. Right. And so now we're going to transition into um, – so I actually think this is really interesting, Ryan. You said you like to combine the life sciences with anthropological theory and, and the research that you're doing now. So can you give us an example of kind of what you mean there and sort of like what that combination entails and how you're using it in your research? Sure. So I think – it if we go back to the sclerochronology a little bit, that's probably where it started, right? So this is a process that until recently wasn't typically in use by archaeologists, and so it sort of stimulated an interest in, among other things, mollusk biology and other coastal environmental um, sort of questions and perhaps research agendas because as humans, and we're thinking about in this case, as I said, Native Americans that lived in the past, they're not folks who are living on the environment. They're folks who are living within it. And so I sort of framed it in my mind in such a way that if I can understand what's going on in a coastal environment, for example, and how those shellfish or fish or turtles or whatever the case might be, how are they pieces of the larger ecosystem? What are their seasonal behavioral patterns and how does that affect their availability to humans how do all of these different pieces of the puzzle fit together and so 
what sort of human-related questions can I ask and can I answer based on knowledge that is drawn from the life sciences. So basically, what can we learn about all these animals' biology and their ecology, and how can that inform us as archaeologists who are interested in coastal environments? So now your your dissertation research is actually um, in the Florida Keys, correct? Correct. So how are you applying these kind of questions and perspectives to um, to the Florida Keys? What are you looking at specifically there? Well, I'm, I guess being that it's a dissertation, there is many goals right. um, that are that are included. In terms of the environment, I think I referenced in the preliminary paperwork that I sent you all that I was partially interested in fragile landscapes and the Florida Keys being sort of emblematic of that. I think you can use fragile in a number of ways and it's certainly appropriate in the Keys because not only are they at risk of of hurricanes like we just saw recently, um, they've been at risk and they fell victim to large-scale development Um, Once the tourism industry took hold in the middle of the 20th century, sort of eliminated a lot of the archaeological sites that existed in the islands. And at the same time, it called out, maybe, to some of the environmentalists and the archaeologists in in the region that, you know, these these are important places and we need to preserve and we need to look at these before they're gone for good. And, and many of them, I can't stress it enough, are already sort of gone for good. And my project is using a previously um, existing collection. So that's the only way, I guess, in that way it sort of speaks to this issue, this problem that we have of studying these places that are fragile because they're small, they're subject to hurricanes, they're They've been developed for tourism. The, the Bahamas and really the, Car- the Caribbean at large is another good example of, of this sort of problem where the entire thing becomes salvage archaeology to try and understand simply what's left but using prior collections because most of these sites have been eliminated. So to go back and talk about the project um, specifically, it's using existing collections to do that sclerochronology technique again to learn a little bit about what populations, what towns even may have existed in the Keys in the past um, when there really is no signature, there is no evidence of those being present on the landscape today. I mean, I mean why, but why is that important? I mean, wh- or why do you think that's important, Ryan, for us to, to really be retrospective as a society and, and pay attention to some of those sites that no longer, no longer exist? Sure. Well, I think it has, in this case, um, it has obvious historical sort of importance. Um, There's a lot of questions that we have in the Florida Keys with regard to where did certain Native American towns exist? Did they exist at all? They're written about in Spanish documents. And so they're just for knowledge for knowledge's sake in terms of like a historical perspective. there's, There's great value there. In addition to that, I think if we look globally, there's perhaps an underplay of the importance of small terrestrial landscapes such as islands, right? So if we look at the United States, where is our densest city? Our largest population in the country, 
I'm going to say New York City on the co on the coast. New York City, right? Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Manhattan's a small island. Right? Oh, really? Oh, okay. I didn't know. That. Yeah, I didn't know. That. Well, I'd I been there. Absolutely. I knew it was an island, but I didn't know it was the densest. Right, and I mean, so you, and and if know you look to small. the West Coast, Los yeah. Angeles is not on an island, but mm. it's near the coast, um, yeah. certainly, and Houston, our fourth largest city in the country. Um, it yeah. would surprise probably a lot of folks to know that Key West was the largest city in Florida for almost 100 years in terms of population. What, I, I, what time, I didn't know that. What time period was, <laughs> would that have well, been? Well, that would have been early 18th century. Okay. Or pardon me, early 19th century, early 1800s. Okay, so gotcha. And stretch. So because most of the large cities have have importance in in terms of their ports, in terms of connecting more distant areas, and so right. when the Spanish and British were first exploring Florida, this was a valuable waypoint in between the Caribbean and um, those places in the old world, and then connecting places farther into Florida and into the greater southeast and U.S. mainland. So I think for a long time there was a bias in, in archaeology and looking at these places and, and saying they're insignificant because they don't hold large populations, which is true. But at the same time, um, they play other very integral roles that are important to sustaining um, much larger populations. Okay. So in the collection that you're studying, have you been able, like what exactly are you looking for when you're examining these uh, these collections? Are you sort of cross-referencing them to like the Spanish documents that you said to confirm or kind of try to verify what, what populations were around at that time or try to find traces of them? Or Right. So I guess I should say there's not a whole lot of archaeology that has occurred in the Keys. Okay. It due in part to the the tourism and the the development for hotels and and all these kinds of things, but what has occurred um, hasn't yet told us very much. And so, when people talk about the keys in a historical context or in an archaeological context, they're quite limited. And what we know at the time of Spanish contact, so around 1513. We know that there were two towns located in the Keys, and these come from a, um, a Spanish guy named Escalante Fontaneda. And he wrote that there were these couple towns and um, that they, they may or may not have been subject to these larger chiefdoms, these larger villages that occurred in or on the mainland in southwest and southeast Florida. And so one of the goals of my project is to shed some light on whether one of these towns could have been located on Key West because he, he makes reference to saying, you know, there was this town called Garangonve that was located on the point of the islands, which would make sense with Key West. But the archaeological site itself is is gone, right? Key West is, every inch of Key West has pretty much been developed. And so it's this archaeological collection that we're going to and we want to use that sclerochronology method so we can determine whether people were collecting shellfish and fish year-round. If they were doing so, I think that raises sort of the, the argument that we could make that if people were using the site year-round, that increases the likelihood that perhaps a permanent occupation occurred there, which is very different from people coming from the mainland villages and just coming down there seasonally to to fish or perform ritual or any other activity. 
So in the in the Key West um, area like that you work, you said most of it's been or you know nearly all of it's been developed. But I'm curious is is there not much like CRM type archaeology going on there to evaluate you know the sites before these hotels are built or you know touristy type things to you know to prevent these sites from being lost to and to begin with. Like, are the regulations different? Or? The the regulations aren't different. There there have been multiple surveys. Um, really, beginning in the 1980s, there was an outfit out of Miami that still exists today that's done CRM surveys across the entire Keys. I think the problem with Key West in particular is its notoriety as a tourist destination, and it was built up so rapidly. Um, the The island was seeded to the United States in 1821. And of course, this precedes any CRM law by about 140 years. And so Old Town Key West and some of these areas where the first American proprietors came down and started constructing roads and building houses and building places of business, they were not subject to any of these any of these rules whatsoever and so we can go back to the newspapers and i've read some of the old articles and things and they talk about native american mounds they talk about what we would now call archaeological sites but they uh, eliminated pretty much all of them and they didn't realize the historical they didn't really care about the historical or archaeological significance of all of these sites and so they were bulldozed in order to make way for for their towns well so that kind of leads us to you know just having to study collections and and things now right that would be that would be certainly true in most areas of the lower keys and then the other problem that i alluded to earlier is of those sites that were fortunate enough to survive perhaps development either residential or commercial were were taken out by hurricanes or tropical storms or things um over the past well between about 1900 and, and 2000 so over the over the 20th century there were eight major hurricanes category three or higher that swept over some part of the keys and then countless tropical storms in addition to that so in an area that's already low-lying where archaeological sites were on or near the coast those are of course going to be at great risk and so we do have some intact sites in the keys um, but they tend to be up closer to the mainland the key largo area closer to miami so how is the how is your approach different um, studying these uh, collections in a I'm assuming they're in a museum um, are they in a museum or right now they're actually in the archaeology lab here at USF oh, okay they they belong to the division of historical resources the Bureau of Archaeological Research in Tallahassee but they have a program for researchers who can take those out on loan um, for various projects like the one that I'm doing Okay. And um, sclerochronology is is that a destructive method or it, it preserves uh, the artifacts you're looking at? Unfortunately, it is destructive because we have to mill samples off of the outer rings of the shell. So I wish it were as simple always as simply counting the growth rings or measuring them, but we have we have to actually do some chemical analysis in addition to that um, to to build up a picture 
of what the annual water temperature might look like. So we're, we're really trying to look at what is the annual climate like that that, that that individual, that shell was experiencing. And so when you're using this method, what are you particularly, what question are you trying to answer using that method, like as it relates to the Florida Keys? Okay, so as it relates to the Florida Keys and as it relates, I, I think, to the to the larger project, yeah. it sounds funny, but the, the question we're interested in is when did the shell die? And what that tells us is when was it collected by Native Americans, right? So it's this process of indirectly determining what time of year the site was being used. And so what what I'm hoping for is that we have all four seasons, quote-unquote, um, represented in the Florida Keys, it's really only two seasons. There's there's wet and dry, yeah. <laughs> wet wet summers and and, and dry, dry winters. So winters. the the temperature does drop a bit in the winter time, uh, of course, because they are sort of on the line of subtropical and tropical. But the the greater change in seasons is wet or dry. And so what I'll be looking for, hopefully, is to get signals that those shells died in both wet and dry seasons and. And I think that in part that would be indicative of people using the site year-round and then sort of go back to strengthening that case of this was a place that uh, a town was located and that and there was an important place. Not only later when the Spanish got here, we know that already, that it was important because they wrote about it. They had The town had a name. Um, what I'm trying to figure out was did it hold the same value? Were people still using it? year-round um, prior to influence by the Spanish. So you you look at shells um, in a much different way than most people, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think I do. Yeah. I <laughs> um, And not to the point yet where I just see one on the beach and I throw it into the ocean out of anger or something like that. Um, but <laughs> it, it is like many things in archaeology. Um, it it's a, a great deal of, of discipline and looking at things under the microscope, very fine-grained analyses, and um, having to have the the diligence and the wherewithal to um, be, be dealing with this type of work where you have to be very, very hyper-focused and um, be, be concentrating because you're dealing with taking samples that, for example, might be less than a millimeter in length. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, it is very careful work and requires a great deal of concentration. So yeah. that is something that um, we take into account. That's um, it's really fascinating. I find it really cool that you can do that with shells. But you know, until we started Anther Alert, I knew next to nothing about archaeology um, besides my 101 class that I took <laughs> as an undergrad. But um, you know, since we have so many archaeologists on here, I've learned a lot about methods and what archaeologists do. But what got you interested in, in using this method originally? Because, I mean, I, I haven't heard of it until, you know, obviously we had you on the show. And mm -hmm. um, it seems like a very unique method to use. Right. And so it goes back to that sort of arranged meeting that I had with my archaeology advisor and the geoscience advisor. This is a technique that paleontologists, geologists, biologists, they've been using this technique for a very, very long time to look at what past climates were like, to look at past environments, to learn a bit, a little bit about the life history of an organism, for example. So 
if you can count how many summers or winters um, a given animal has experienced, then that's going to say something about its life history. How long do they live, for example? What times of year do they grow? Why is that the case? Is it something to do with their environment or their food availability or any any other issue? And so it was later in the game that archaeologists realized, um, of course, particularly those that are working on the coast, that this could be used to answer questions that relate to people and that relate to um, uh, coastal issues uh, with regard to to archaeology. All right. Well, I think that is um, a good stopping point for another break, and then we will come back and we will continue talking to Ryan about his research, and then it'll be about time to wrap up the show. So stay tuned. And welcome back to Anthro Alert here on uh, Bulls Radio WSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide 24-7 live and on the scene at TuneIn.com and on the TuneIn app. Uh, feel free to uh, send us your questions on Twitter at Anthro Alert or text them to us 802-552-4487. We do have one question, though, from Twitter. Uh, hey, Ryan. Hold on here. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to read one of them. Oh, um, how do you keep yourself from being too bored when you are um, researching the shells? I think, I think that question is most appropriate when you're working with shells in the lab, and I like to keep a very excellent musical playlist to occupy my mind when I'm doing the more mundane tasks. The field work in collecting the shells is actually quite nice because you get to spend time in the water or on the beach so i can't complain there splashing around and having a good time absolutely that sounds good all right so um that was our very first uh listener question on anthro alert so the, the show is officially shout interactive <laughs> absolutely. shout out we've reached a new stage in anthro alert so you were here to experience that ryan so hold on and that was from i'm trying to read this twitter name here uh K-G-I-D-U-S, Gidusco. K-Gidusco. All right, shout out to so, you. Thank you so for being the first. Start following that Thank you, K-Gidusco, for your insightful question. Yes, real thought provoker. Right. <laughs> um, so in this section of the show, we usually like to ask people about what they plan to do when they graduate. So you said you're only about two and a half years in, so you at least have another year left, maybe maybe two-ish. Um, do you have any ideas about what you may want to do after this? I think about that a great deal, and I think people close, people close to me would um, probably uh, agree with that because as Ph.D. students, we're often talking about what's the next step. Yeah. And I go back and forth, but I... I do want to at least um, investigate perhaps like an, an academic um, route. I'm, I would like to stay in the state of Florida if possible. Um, I really enjoy doing, doing the research that I do, and it's always possible to do research in a CRM context or working for a state park. There are many, many outlets for an archaeologist to be able to do research, but I think academia is appealing in that way because it frees up perhaps the most time um, to, to do that kind of work. And so if I had to just 
distill it all down and say one sort of career goal that I have, I would I would love to be a, a professor one day. And so, I mean, you've had a lot of work being uh, like a you know in CRM doing professional sorts of archaeological research. You know, um, do you just you just tend to like research more, or can you kind of talk about? the transition of being, you know, sort of working at a CRM for a corporation and sort of being in academia that might be useful to some some archaeological grad students here, undergraduate students here? I would say for, for me personally, I can't say whether this extends to everyone or is applicable to everyone, but I think the difference that I see um, in terms of the, the work that you're doing is, of course, different in a CRM setting because it's the contractor that's dictating what you do. You're you're only digging in the pathway of construction. So that's very different from an academic context where you get to choose where it is that you're going to dig or the, the project or research question that you're going to investigate. So it's different in that way. And so if I had to leave one sort of takeaway, it probably is something to do with the independence that you feel when you're working for a CRM firm you're you're told what to do you have a boss it's in a way it's a corporate structure whereas in in academia at least my limited experience of it you have a higher degree of independence and you get to make choices with what sort of project you want to tackle or take on and so i think that's one of the main strengths that keeps driving me um toward that career pathway so I think it's about it's about time to wrap up for this week of Anther Alert. This was our first show coming back from holiday vacation. Um, so you are our first guest coming back. So we want to thank Ryan for coming in and talking to us. Um, we had a great conversation. Renee and I always learn a lot about what other students do and faculty do in the department, and um, it's always a really great experience for us. So Sclerochronology. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's going to be on a trivia question one day, and I'm going to know it, and it's it's going to be awesome. You're going to be ready on at Buffalo Wild Wings one yeah. day. Yeah, I'm going to be ready for it. <laughs> so uh, wrapping up the show, do you have any sort of takeaways, Ryan, for, for Renee and I or our listeners, or anything you want to wrap up, some words of wisdom for us? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't ready for that one. That was really on the spot, the takeaways. I would, I would just say um, to... Maybe if you're about to walk by a museum in Florida, perhaps even a mark, an archaeological museum, instead of instead of continuing on by it, make sure you stop in and, and check out archaeology because it's something. I think Cassie and Becky said this. It's something yeah. that's local. It's something that happens here in Florida. It's not something that's contained only in yeah. Egypt or ancient Greece. Yeah, that's a great that's a great takeaway. Yeah. So you know this show today, you know, focus on public archaeology, cultural resource management management. Um, so be sure to check out the Florida Public Archaeology Network. There's a good way to learn more about archaeology in your Florida neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, if you're listening to us in Missouri, it's not going to help you much. But, um, but also, Which is a fine state, by it, the way. It's a, I love St. Louis. I've never seen it. I've never been there. St. Louis. I've is seen a it on city. the map. It looks nice. Yeah. <laughs> I like St. I like St. Louis a lot. Um, is cool. that close to where you grew up? Uh, about five hours away. Well, it's closer than me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so be sure to check, visit visit the Florida State Park near you. Check out the Florida Public Archaeology Network. Um, just, you know, go look at shells, man. I mean, <laughs> have a look at them and, and just know that 
there's a lot that happens there that you probably wouldn't normally think about. Um, Shells matter. Next time you're on the beach, just go count the rings. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, – Ryan, certainly do appreciate the time you give us today. Um, yeah, thank you. I, again, I, I learned quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, I'm always surprised at the depth and the breadth of what anthropology is. Yeah. So, yeah, tune in next week because next week's going to be a good show. Look look at us on anthroalert.com. Okay? Connect with us on Twitter at anthroalert. We're on Facebook at anthroalert. Yep. Anthro Alert. Yep. Okay. Yep. And then uh, YouTube at the same handle. YouTube as well. We're all over the internet. Um, just when you search on YouTube, be sure it's Anthro Alert Podcast. One yeah. word. It's, it, you get weird. You get weird stuff otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know what it is. <laughs> for but some reason, we, I don't know how that happened. But, but uh, yeah. All right. Thank you guys for tuning in, and we will see you next week. Bye.